This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning, please, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as Mr. Hickman has already mentioned, today is a day that we refer to as Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, I look forward to uh, getting together with you and celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but we're going to celebrate His resurrection this morning. I need to celebrate His resurrection every moment of my life. If I made more of the resurrection of Christ in my life, I'd live a much more victorious life. I'd live a happier life. I wouldn't live such a frustrated life if I would just make more of the resurrection of Christ. Because really, that's what it's all about, right? His death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, by the way, what a, what a great lesson on human nature. One day, they're throwing palm leaves down in front of them, and they're screaming and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes the king. Four days later, they're putting him on a cross, and they're killing him. You say, four days later? Yeah, he wasn't crucified on, on Friday. You say, he wasn't? No, no. I won't get into all that. But. As Jonah was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man, right? That doesn't work on Friday. The Passover lamb was put up. Moses told him in Exodus chapter 14, Moses said, take that Passover lamb and you put it up on the 10th day of Nisan, and four days later on the 14th day of Nisan, you put it to death. And Jesus was put up. He came riding into the city victorious. He was put up. And then four days later, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, gave his life. So we celebrate that this week. We look at it. We, we thank God for it. Hebrews chapter number 9 and verse number 11. We'll begin our reading there this morning. The Bible says, But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. 
and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with uh, blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So many things in this chapter, and we don't even begin to have enough time this morning to unpackage all of this. But we're speaking of the sacrifice. And Paul, or whoever the writer happens to be of the book of Hebrews, speaks to us about things being sanctified, set aside, purified, and all that. And, and he speaks of the, the fact that nothing, nothing is purified. Almost all things in the law, he says, are purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no taking away of sin debt without the shedding of blood. And this idea of sacrifice goes all the way back literally to the very beginning. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and they sin. God tells them not to eat and they disobey. Eve is deceived into eating the fruit. Adam willfully chooses Eve over God. And so they both break the law of God. God says don't eat and they do eat. By the way, let me stop right here and just remind us that there, are, there were far more trees in the Garden of Eden that they could eat from than trees that they couldn't. And we, we I, I shouldn't say we, I'm just going to say, but I forget that so often. There is so much more that I can do than I cannot do. And by the way, all the things that I am permitted to do bring joy, satisfaction, and a relationship with my Savior, and everything that does not doesn't matter anyway. And so Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, and God does something incredible, something, something astounding. God himself kills an animal. He sheds the blood of that animal to make a covering for Adam and Eve. You see, they tried it their own way. They, they sewed some fig leaves together. They, they knew that they were naked before them, each other and before God, and so they tried to cover themselves, and, and that is a great picture of of man's religious attempts, trying to work our way to God, never, ever to be successful. God does something. He sets a precedent. He slays an animal. He uses that skin to cover Adam and Eve. And, and so you find there that, that Adam and Eve, uh, God has a, a sacrifice for them. And you find that their children, Cain and Abel, bring sacrifices. Cain brings a sacrifice to God that's not an acceptable sacrifice, but Abel brings a blood sacrifice to God, the, the slaying of an animal. And, and all the way through Scripture, when Noah gets off of the ark, what does he do? He sacrifices to the Lord. 
Abraham makes sacrifices, and Isaac and Jacob make sacrifices to God, and, and Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, and, and they make sacrifice to the Lord, and before they come into the land, they make sacrifice, and then once they're in the land of promise, and the tabernacle becomes the, the temple of God, and, and, and under the kings, and there is sacrifice all through the Old Testament, and so the question is very simply this, what is all the sacrifice for? Why, why all this bloodshed? Why, by the way, why the giving of innocent life? What had those animals ever done? They hadn't sinned. They hadn't broken God's law. But all the way back in the book of Genesis, God set a precedent, and the precedent is this, that the innocent must die for the guilty. The one who bears their own sin debt can never pay their own sin debt because they're a debtor. So the innocent must die for the guilty. So the question is this, why all the sacrifices? All of those sacrifices could never take away sin. Look at verse number 11 of our passage, or excuse me, verse number 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. These, these animal sacrifices are, are simply a picture they can never wash the sin of man away. They can, never, they can never roll back the wrath of God upon sin. They're just a picture, right? So what are they a picture of? Well, we know that they're a picture of the Lamb of God. And Jesus comes walking through the, the wilderness that day, and I can see John the Baptist lifting up his eyes and seeing Jesus. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What are, what are all the sacrifices for? The sacrifices are a picture of what he would come and he would one day accomplish. I'd invite you to go to verse number 26 of our passage. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you please mark these words? He appeared to put away sin. He appeared. Oh, we know he appeared. We love to talk about Bethlehem's manger. Silent night, holy night, all is calm and all is bright. We love the Christmas story. We love to put fanciful images in our mind of, of a clean straw bed and little animals laying around as if it was the most sterile environment ever. That's not really the facts. We love the Christmas story. I love the Christmas story. But why? Why did he come? What was the purpose of it all? Jesus said of himself, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came for one purpose. Now, look, he did a lot of things while he was here, right? He did a lot of things. He healed lots of people. He preached lots of sermons. He taught lots of lessons, and, and he did lots of things while he was here. But every one of those things was ancillary to the, the cause for which the Father sent him. And I'm telling you this morning that he appeared to us for the purpose of putting away our sin, to put it away. And by the way, he put things away better than I put them away when I was a child. Mom said, go to your room, put things away. I said, all right, I'll shove them under my bed. All right? Some of the teenagers are laughing. That's because they're guilty. We're all guilty. Did I put them away? No, I didn't put them away. I put them out of sight. I want you to know that the work that Christ did did not just put sin out of sight. It put it in its place. 
He put sin away. He took it from me by his sacrifice, and he put it in a place that was appropriate. He took our sin away. There are three things I'd like us to see this morning very quickly as we move through this chapter. Number one, if you write this down, he put away the penalty of my sin. He appeared to put away sin, and he put away the penalty of my sin. Now watch very carefully. All of the animal sacrifices are going on, and this is just a picture. They're just picturing what is going to happen, what is going to come. Christ is going to come, and he's going to shed his own blood, and he's going to be the, the final and ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he does not say, by the way, I'm changing everything. I'm changing everything. No, no. He says very simply, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but rather I've come to fulfill them. You see, the fulfillment was this. There must be one perfect sacrifice. And Jesus said, I am that one sacrifice, and he came to us. He came to you, and he came to me, born in Bethlehem, lived a perfect and sinless life, and he was here. He came, first and foremost, to put away the penalty of our sin. I have circled in my Bible, perhaps you'd like to circle it, in verse number 26, I have the phrase, hath he appeared. Hath, present tense, excuse me, past tense, past tense, hath he appeared. And by the way, that phrase that is, that is translated in your Bible, hath he appeared, comes from a phrase that says, to be made known. I think that's very significant. What did Jesus do when he appeared? He made himself known. Why is that significant? It is significant because God the Father has always wanted to make himself known to us. This is why he walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. This is why he communed with them. He always intended for us to have that relationship. And when that relationship was severed, when, when sin entered the bloodstream of mankind, and, and by the way, what, what a toxic disease sin is. I want you to consider this. It took one act of disobedience, not murder, not genocide, not, not abuse of a small child or, or things that we would think are absolutely hideous and detestable things. We know it didn't take any of that. It took one act of disobedience, just one, to condemn all of humanity to hell. And you want to talk about a disease that, that, is, that, is, that is spreading? It's genetic. We've all got it. And, and, and sin is, is something that is passed from one generation to the next and to the next and to the next, and so we're all affected by it. But, but think of this. Adam and Eve, that one act of sin, condemning every one of us. So Jesus, watch this. So Jesus is the one who is made known to us. You see, God cannot, God cannot commune with mankind anymore because man is sinful and he is holy and righteous. And the Bible says that he's of pure horizon to behold sin. So watch this. The person of Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and the word of God tells us that he showed up, he appeared to be made known. John chapter 14, Jesus is finishing his earthly ministry. He's preparing to return to heaven after he goes to the cross. And he says to disciples, let not your heart be 
uh, afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And he goes on to tell them about all these things. He says to them, whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then he says this, if you know, if, if, if you know me, you know the Father. You know what Philip said? Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. If you'll just show us who the Father is, you're speaking of the Father, but if you'll just show us the Father, we'll be happy. That's all we need. Lord, we've seen the miracles, and we've seen the, the, the people raised from the dead, and we've, we've, heard, we've heard you teach and preach, but Lord, if you'll just give us this one final thing, show us the Father. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, how have I been so long time with you, and yet you're still asking me to see the Father? He said, you're seeing him. You're looking at him. I and the Father are one, and I want you to know that he appeared to put away the penalty of our sin, and he came so that we could know him. Does that thought amaze you? You could know God. I mean, you could know him. I don't mean you could know something about him. I mean, I mean you can know God. Jesus appeared to put away the penalty of my sin, and he, he appeared so that I could know him. What is the penalty of my sin? What is it? Hold your place here to, to Revelation chapter number 20, if you would, please. The Word of God tells us in Ezekiel chapter 18 that the soul that sinneth, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The book of Romans says that the wages of sin, the payment for our sin is death. You say, why do we die? Why do we take loved ones to uh, a cemetery? And, and why do we put their bodies into graves? And why do we weep? And why do we mourn? And why do we miss them so much? It's because of sin. What's the cause of all the uh, of suffering and, and, and all of humanity? It, it boils all down to sin. But I want you to know, there's more than just physical death because of sin. Look at Revelation chapter number 20, verse 11. The Word of God says, and John is speaking here, and I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I submit to you this morning that the wages of sin is death, and it is not just physical death. It is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And I'll never go there. I'm free from that. I'm secure. And I can say it confidently. You say, how? Because he appeared. And when he appeared, he put away the penalty of my sin. The penalty is gone. Wait a second. Watch this. It was more than just God the Father saying, I'll ignore your sin. 
He can't do that. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He cannot just ignore my sin. Somebody had to pay for it. Somebody had to pay for it. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ did not just die for me. He died as me. He took my place. He went to the cross, and he paid the debt that I owed. He did not owe a debt. I owed a debt. And he paid it for me. In the side of my Bible, in verse number 26, right beside, hath he appeared, I wrote this word, justified. I ask you this morning, have you been justified? You say, what is that word? It's not a word that we use a lot. I was telling the teenagers not too long ago, when I was a little boy, we had a television, and it was about the size of this pulpit, actually. All right? How many remember those? All right? Yes. That was back in the day. I never understood that until I did some research. It was a Wednesday. The day. It was a Wednesday. I can show you evidence later. The large television, right? It was this big. The screen was about this big. Right? And uh, it took five or six men to carry it into my living room. And when you watched the, the, the ball game, you had to sit right up on it, you know, because the screen was so small and Sometimes, I remember sometimes as a boy, I'd go in there, and uh, especially on Saturday mornings, right? That's back when life was good, and there were Saturday morning cartoons, and uh, before Cartoon Network and all this cable stuff ruined life. And uh, I'd turn the TV on, I'd sit down with my bowl of Cheerios or whatever I had, and every once in a while, perhaps you remember this, perhaps you remember this, here's the screen, here's the screen right here, but the image is over here. Like Shaggy was on the screen, but Scooby-Doo wasn't. And you go, who's he talking to? You know? And, and so here's what you do. You know it. What would you do? You'd find the justification knob. Who knows what I'm talking about? Huh? It'd say justify left or justify right. And you'd turn that knob, and all of a sudden, here comes Scooby-Doo back onto the screen. And it's justified. Look here. It is made right. What happened to me? What happened to you if you know the Lord is your Savior? I'll tell you what happened. We were made right. We weren't right. Hey, we were, we were way over here. And Jesus appeared to put away the penalty of my sin. And before God, in a judicial setting, I was, I was recognized as guilty. Guilty. And by the way, do any of us really think that we'll stand before God and make excuse for our sin? I'll argue with people. I won't argue with them, but I'll, I'll say that, you know, there's, oh, there's no such thing as a God. No, 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 you know, God's not real and evolution, blah, blah, blah. But can I tell you that very, very rarely have I ever spoken to somebody and I've ever asked them this question, are you a sinner? Have you ever done anything wrong? Where they'll say, nope, never done anything wrong. By the way, where'd that law come from? If there's no God, where'd the law come from? Can I tell you something? In the deepest, darkest recesses of my heart and your heart, here's what we know. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've broken his law. I've gone against what I, what I know I can sense is right to do. And he, he appeared, Christ appeared to justify me, to put me where I'm supposed to be. Look here, I was translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. 
I was, I was under the wrath of God, and I've been moved under the mercy and grace of God. I've been justified this morning. He appeared to put away the penalty of my sin. Secondly, write this down if you would, please. Not only did he appear to put away the penalty of my sin, he appeared to put away the power of my sin. Look at verse number 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figure of the true, but into heaven itself, and circle this phrase, now to appear. You see, verse 26 tells us that he hath appeared, and when he appeared back there, he did the work of Calvary. He suffered, he bled, he died. He died for me, he died in my place, and he did the work of salvation, and that is my justification. But guess what the Bible says to me? That he is now appearing in the presence of God for us. And I want you to know that he appeared and he is appearing to put away the power of my sin. Let me show you something really cool here. Hold your place here. Turn back to chapter 7. By the word, by, by the word, by the way, the word. That's what, I, that's what we're saying. The word appear that you find in, in chapter, uh, chapter 9 and verse 24 is different than the word appeared in verse 26. In verse 26, it, it, it means to, to be made known. In verse number 24, it means to present, watch this, to present oneself in the sight of another. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Why is that? It's because the Son at this moment is presenting Himself in the presence and in the sight of Almighty God on your behalf and on my behalf. Now watch this. Go back to chapter 7 of Hebrews. Look at verse number 22. The Bible says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hey, watch right here. For many, many years, a high priest would go in, watch, once a year, one time a year, the Day of Atonement. He would go in, and by the way, he had to do all this ritual stuff, right? He had to, he had to bathe himself, and he had to put on white linen robes, and then he had to bathe himself again, and he had to, to oh, just all these tedious things he had to do. And then after all of that, after all of that, he would go in one day a year very, very tentatively and very, very cautiously into the holiest of all. And he would apply the blood to the mercy seat, which would atone the sins of the people, not forgiving them, watch here, not forgiving them, but atoning, simply rolling back the judgment of God one more year. And then he would slip quietly back out of there and he wouldn't return for another year. And not only that, but guess what? After that guy would do that for a number of years, he would die. And then somebody else would take his job, and then somebody else, and then somebody else. But I don't have a high priest who goes into God once a year on my behalf and very simply says, Lord, just, just roll his sin back one more time. Lord, just, just hold off on that judgment one more time. I don't have a high priest who comes and goes, who lives for a while and then dies, and then his place is taken. No, I have an eternal high priest 
forever in the heavens. And what is he doing at this moment? What is Jesus doing right now? While you and I are sitting in church on Sunday morning, what is Jesus doing? I'll tell you he's doing a lot of things, but one of the things that he's doing is he's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for me. You see, the devil is the accuser. And by the way, the devil, he, he switches roles. First of all, he tempts. And then if we give in to temptation, the tempter becomes the accuser. Do this, Dan. Go ahead. Look, it's okay. It's all right. No one's going to know. Nobody's perfect. You can have an attitude. You can live discouraged. It's okay. And then I do. And then he says, yeah, great Christian you are. Great Christian you are. You're a failure. You failed again. And then what's he do? Well, the Bible says that he accuses us day and night before God the Father. So then he runs to God. He says, look what that bum did. Look at that sorry excuse for a Christian. Look how terrible he is. And by the way, he's right. But there's somebody else in heaven. As Satan accuses me before the Father, Jesus stands and he says, Father, do you see these nail-pierced hands? Do you see my side? He is paid for. Look here. He died, watch this. He died for me. He died as me. So when he came out of the grave, he came out for me, and he came out as me. Watch. If you're a Christian this morning, not only is the penalty of your sin taken away, but he is progressively taking away the power of sin in your life. Hold your place here. Turn to Romans chapter 6 very quickly. Romans chapter 6. You see, here's what the devil wants to do. The devil wants you and I to believe that sin is just part of our life. Failure is part of the Christian life. Sinning is just natural. And you're never going to defeat it. Ever. Look, you come to the altar, pastor preaches, the word of God speaks to your heart, the spirit of God moves you. You come to the altar, you say, God, I'm never going to do that again. Lord, help me, I'm never going to do that again. And the next week, you're at the altar, and you're saying, Lord, I did it again. And here's what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that the Christian life is one defeat after another, after another, after another. Go ahead and give up hope. Just give up hope. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. The prophet Zechariah, by the word of God, said to the people of Israel, he said, turn ye to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. You know what we are? We are prisoners to defeat. We're prisoners to sin. We're not prisoners of hope. We should be. The resurrection power of Christ lives in me. The only thing that sin has in my life is a shadow. That's all it has. And, and, and when I sin, watch carefully, when I sin, it is not because I am bound to sin. It is because I have chosen to sin. And 
God said of his people in the Old Testament, my people are destroyed for knowledge. And I would say that in this generation and in our day, I am destroyed because of my lack of knowledge of the power of God that lives inside. Look, what the, the power that it took for Jesus to come up out of the grave is the power that I have living inside of me. Sin is defeated in my life. If you're a Christian, sin is defeated in your life. And the devil does not want you to know that. As long as he can have you a prisoner to defeat and a prisoner to, dis to distraction and, and all these other things, then he's got, he's got us beat. And God says you need to be a prisoner of hope. Look, the Christian life is the most hopeful thing there is. I have Christ living inside of me. He appeared, and he appeared to put away the penalty of my sin, but he is appearing at this very moment in heaven. He is speaking to the Father. He is praying for me, and nail-pierced hands have purchased my redemption, and sin no longer has power in my life. You say, I want to see it in Scripture. Great, Romans chapter 6. Look at it, please. Look at verse number 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we, also, that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are, under, we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. I know ye not, excuse me, know ye not, that to whom ye... Yield yourself servants to God to obey. His servants ye are to obey whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. What is the point here? The point is this. Before I was saved, I was a prisoner to sin. I couldn't help it. I was bound to it. I'm no longer bound to it. Christ has given me the power in my life to overcome sin, and now it is a matter of yielding. I gave this illustration just a few minutes ago in our teen Sunday school class. It's a matter of yielding. When you're driving an automobile, you come to a sign. It's a yield sign. That sign means that somebody has to give way to somebody else. Physics, physics class for the next 30 seconds, okay? Go way, way back. Remember physics? I remember physics. Failed it. Physics class. Watch here. Two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Universal law of physics. That speaker is right there. I cannot be right there because the speaker is there. If I'm going to be there, then I must remove the speaker out of its place because two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And in your life and in my life, even as believers, you cannot have two heads. You cannot have, look, if any man is that way, then, then he's unstable. Watch here. It is no longer a matter of power and, and, and control. It is a matter of yielding now in my life. And every temptation that comes to me, I have a choice to make. It's a choice of yielding. Watch very carefully. 
Every time I am tempted to sin, one of two things will take place. Either I will say to God, Lord, I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to stay right here, and I'm going to let you have your way in my life. That is option number one. Option number two is, I put my hand in the face of God, and I say to him, no, I'm going to reject the power that you have over sin in my life. I'm going to reject the fact that you own me, and you, eternal creator God of heaven and earth, will yield to my will. Now, that's not a pleasant thought, but it's reality. It is a matter in my life, and it is a matter in your life of simple yielding. And can I tell you, for the unsaved, perhaps you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you don't even know what that means. For an unsaved person, someone who does not know Christ, sin is as much a part of their nature as, as anything else. But for those of us who know the Lord, it is no longer our nature. Look, it is not normal for a Christian to sin. It's abnormal. Look here. It's not part of our nature anymore. And so now I'm reverting back to my old nature. And Paul says to the Romans and to you and I today, you're dead to that. He was crucified to pay the penalty of my sin. He rose triumphantly from the grave. He appeared to take away the power of my sin. I have written beside verse number 24, this is my sanctification. There is justification. He made me right. And now there is sanctification. Look, it is an ongoing process. What is sanctification? Paul said it is growing into the stature of the fullness of Christ. Every day it's less of me and more of him and less of me and more of him. That is sanctification. There's a third thing very quickly. Look at verse number 28. The Bible says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him... right." Circle this if you would, please. Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? It's interesting that every one of these words, appear, appeared, and appear, are all translated from a different word or phrase. Hath he appeared to make known. Now to appear to present in the sight of someone else. And shall he appear in verse number 28, means to look or to gaze upon, watch this, by definition, with wide open eyes, as at something remarkable. Can I tell you something? One of these days, if God will let me live, my jaw is going to drop and my eyes are going to bug out. Why? Because I'm going to hear something. I'm going to hear something. And then all of a sudden, I'm gone. So what is that? We refer to it as the rapture. It is the, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared once. He is now appearing. And the Bible tells us that one day he shall appear. And when he does, he will not just put away the penalty of my sin or the power of my sin, but he will save me from the very presence of my sin. So many people want to talk about, when's Jesus coming back? When's he coming back? The signs of the times. The signs of the, look, there are signs of the times. And Jesus spoke about the times of the signs. The signs of the times. That's what 
signs of the times. And there are signs. There, there are things we can look at around us and say, you know what? The Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about that. But can I, can I say to you, I have no idea when he's coming. Neither, neither does anybody else, by the way. So if they say that they do, they don't. Nobody knows when he is coming. But let me tell you what I can know. I cannot know when he's coming, but I can know what is going to happen when he comes. And let me tell you one of the greatest things that's going to happen. When Jesus returns, if, if I'm able to be alive and to see it, and by the way, my prayer this morning is even so come Lord Jesus, but if I'm alive when that trumpet sounds and he raptures me out of here, let me tell you what's going to happen. He's going to save me from the very body of this death and sin, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. You say, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he appeared? He did a work that only he could do. He came and he freed us from the penalty of our sin. He is freeing us from the power of sin. And I'm so grateful to tell you that one day he will save us from the very presence of our sin. I have written on the side of my Bible by verse number 28, this is my glorification. There is my justification, there is my sanctification, but praise God, one day there will be my glorification. Let me ask you very simply, do you know Christ as your Savior this morning? Has there been a time in your life, watch, watch carefully, has there been a time in your life when you recognized that you were a sinner and that Jesus Christ was the only one who could forgive your sin? Watch, watch now. And have you of your own free will simply said to him, God, I am a sinner, and you are a Savior. And I'm accepting you as my Savior. Have you put your faith in him? The day is coming, the Bible says, when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. The saddest part of all of that is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, please. Jesus is praying for you this morning. If you're a Christian, he's praying for you this morning. If you're not a Christian, he is praying for you this morning, and he's drawing you to himself. Would you respond to him today? Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Nobody looking around. We're going to give a brief word of invitation. In just a moment, Ms. Dixon's going to begin playing hymn number 608, Christ Liveth in Me. You don't need the hymn book. We're going to keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Can I ask you a question very quickly? And by the way, you're not answering to me, please. You're not answering to me. I'm nobody. But would you answer before God honestly? He already knows the answer. But who would raise their hand and say, Dan, there's been a moment in my life when I repented of my sin and by faith I trusted Christ as my Savior. If I died at this very moment, there's not one doubt in my mind that I would go to heaven to be with God for all of eternity. Would you raise your hand very quickly and then sit it back down? Thank you so much. Hands all over the place. It's a great sight. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to come to you. I'm not going to point you out. I want to pray for you. Please, would you let me pray for you this morning? If you're here today and you say, I do not have that assurance. There's never been a time in my life when I've, when I've received Christ as my Savior. I'm not going to embarrass you, but 
Can I pray for you this morning? Would you, would you just slip your hand up there? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Lord, you know the hearts of those that are in this room this morning, and I pray that you would draw people to yourself. Lord, for the Christian who is defeated this morning because they think that there is no hope, would you encourage their heart in knowing that the victory over our sin was won, and we have true victory in Christ. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.